Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Well, we've established an Access Utah tradition. On or near Earth Day cheer, we invite Utah writer Stephen Trimble and other guests to talk about the Earth, the land, the environment. Here's Stephen Trimble's suggestion for this year. For Earth Day program, he says, how about addressing the future of recreation on crowded and imperiled public lands in Utah? Is marketing the Mighty Five such a good idea when the lines grow so long at arches that the park has to close? The state population will double by 2050. We'll need those lands of refuge more than ever, and the legislature wants to develop them endlessly. We're going to talk about it on the program today with Stephen Trimble, author of Bargaining for Eden, The Fight for the Last Open Spaces in America. We'll also be welcoming in Ann Whitaker, content manager at Utah.com, and Ashley Kornblatt, who runs Western Spirit Cycling Adventures. We hope to hear from you as well. We're asking you what your experience has been on Utah's public lands, especially the national parks. And uh, also asking you, where do you go? Where's your place of refuge? Don't have to describe it in full if you want to keep it uh, keep it a secret place. Those questions out to you. at uh, You can reach us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Stephen Trimble, to remind our listeners, uh, has received a broad range of awards for his photography, nonfiction, and fiction. Uh, his books include Bargaining for Eden, also Lasting Light, Geography of Childhood, Sagebrush Ocean, and other books. He uh, lives, I believe, still in Salt Lake City and Tory. Stephen Trimble? That's right. Well, thanks, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. Welcome to the program. Um, we also bring in Ann Whitaker, who is content manager at uh, Utah.com and uh, also is a founder of uh, Pingora, Women's Outdoor Apparel Line, has been involved in other companies. Understand, Ann Whitaker, you graduated from Middlebury College. Yes, that's right. Um, I did, and thanks for having me. Oh, thanks. Thanks for coming on the program. What was your What was your career goal coming out of Middlebury? <laughs> I was actually um, going to, um, I was on the Ph.D. route um, and then decided to move back to Utah and kind of feel things out a little bit more and um, found this um, position at Utah.com and and that kind of rerouted me. So, um, yeah, I didn't know that was coming. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll talk to you about that. You've been part of the marketing effort, which has been wildly successful. Uh, so we'll talk talk about uh, that as well. We also uh, bring in for the conversation um, Ashley Korenblatt, who uh, runs Western Spirit Cycling Adventure uh, Company. Ashley's a graduate of Dartmouth and Tuck Business School, former bike racer, and uh, as you say in your bio, Ashley, former Wall Street captive. <laughs> exactly. I escaped. You escaped. So now now you're in the outdoors. And, exactly. Much better. Uh, you and your husband run... Uh, run Western uh, Spirit. That, is that based in Moab? We're based in Moab. We do um, multi-day bike trips on the public lands all around the country. Um, we're one of the largest holders of recreation permits on the public land system. We we sort of duke it out with Knowles for that honor. Okay. Well, let me start with uh, Stephen Trimble, and you'd made reference in, uh, in the very fine introduction to the program. I'm using your introduction there. Um Let me quote uh, Deseret News. They say, on Memorial Day weekend last year, Utah Highway Patrol had Arches National Park shut its doors, quote-unquote, because traffic was backed up for more than a mile on U.S. Highway 191, creating an extreme traffic hazard. Parking lots that could hold close to 200 cars were overflowing with 300 or more. And uh, and so that's just one example of, uh, of how the parks are being loved more and more and perhaps loved to death. 
Yes, Tom. And I, I just wonder about the consequences of all these people. You know, the, the national park rangers who manage those places have to figure out how to de- deal with increasing millions, literally millions of people every year coming to those little hot spots of tourism. And at the same time, as a state, we want them to come. And the state has figured out this very clever campaign to promote the Mighty Five National Parks. And that focuses crowds on those spots. And as we all know who are listening, really the whole state could be a national park. It's extraordinary landscape. And there are all the places in between. And as the population grows ever larger here in Utah, and people move to Utah specifically to have access to the extraordinary public lands. You know, what are we going to do? Are we gonna, I, I really want people to think about this before the, excuse me, before the crowds overwhelm the places. Uh, and as you point out, state population will double by 2050. That's just one piece of this. We have many visitors from, from you know, foreign countries and other states. Um, and as you say... We need lands of refuge, and public lands for many are, are those lands of refuge. Absolutely, and, and, you know, we know that. And most of us have our own particular little places, and it may be uh, making pilgrimages to Delicate Arch anywhere, anytime we get anywhere near Arches National Park. But it's harder and harder for that to feel like a pilgrimage that you have to yourself. You know, even if you go on the night of the full moon at midnight, you'll have company up at, at Delicate Arch these days. And the in-between places are becoming discovered as well. You know, we can't keep secrets. So what, uh, you know, what is the underlying philosophy that we want to think about as a community? Um, we want people to appreciate the places, because if they don't know the places, they won't fight to protect them. And we want, to, we want people to have that relationship with nature, because it's going to make better people, better human beings. And we need to have a uh, community of people that have had those experiences who can fight back against those who see the land only as commodity. So we want Ashley to be inviting people on bike trips. And we want Anne to be, be writing eloquent descriptions of wildness in Utah that draw people here from big cities elsewhere so they can have that experience. But how many of them do we want? You know, maybe it's time to... Time to ask um, your other guests what they think about that. What is the answer to that? All right, let's let's do that. Uh, first of all, we'll get a little background from Ann Whitaker. Uh, first of all, uh, so in, in some ways, this is this is a great job, isn't it? You're you're and it's a job you can feel good about. You're you're promoting beautiful natural resources and encouraging people to get outdoors where they can heal their souls. So let me start there. That's uh, the you know the positive aspects there. Yeah, no, it is. It is a great um, job um, in that I get to familiarize myself even more. I mean, I grew up in Utah. Um, it's it is my home. It's it's been my home for generations, um, and it's it's provided. It has provided that refuge for me. It has, and it's you know this job allows me to dig deeper to um, get to know the people who live in these gateway communities, to get to know their businesses, to get to know. Um, what they've been doing for generations in these areas and what's important to them and and why the landscape is um, important to their family and their posterity. And um, it just makes Utah have that much more meaning for me um, that this 
that this land, um, this landscape offers so much to us. And um, yeah, it definitely at times feels like I am taking a lot from it. And, and recently, you know, in the past few years of my life, just trying to think of like, what, how can I give back to this land that has given me so much and given our communities so much? What can we, we do to give back? And it's, it's such a, you know, it's, it's, it's such a great place. How can you not talk about it? How can, you know, and I, I constantly, I, um, you know, people ask me my favorite places and, and I blurt them out and immediately I have this feeling of like, Oh, should I have told them that about that place? Or, (laughs) you know, but it's just, it's, I get so excited about it. You almost, you can't, it's hard to keep it a secret. It's hard to not talk about myself and talk about these places that have played a role in shaping me and my worldview. Um, so the, this job does allow me to um, to tell people about Utah and and about the public lands that we enjoy here and the importance that they have um, in our personal lives um, and therefore in the economy um, and yeah just in a way too um, you know I get to also kind of educate people and and we're working harder and harder at Utah.com to to educate people on, um, you know, etiquette in public lands and and how to spread out and how to um, take care, you know, people are coming, whether we like it or not, in a way, you know, this year we've got National Park Centennial, voters voted Utah the number one place to visit in the world this year. Um, it's on people's radars now, and, and our hope is that we can, we can help people as they come here know how to love it and and keep it for generations to come. What do you think about uh, Stephen's question then? What what should long range planning look like? How do we preserve these spaces and and, and allow ourselves and others to to go and visit, but but not love them to death, not not have overcrowding? What <laughs> it, it's it's a kind of a it's a, a sort of problem of of success, right? The the Mighty Five has been a very successful campaign, for example. Right. Um, but but how do we plan for the long term? I think, you know, on those kind of, um, it's a great question. I, I, I struggle with this question with every article I write, with every um, piece of content we put out. Um, I know the state, their, their Mighty Five campaign start, that started um, last year, this year they've expanded that to include the road to Mighty, trying to encourage people to kind of spread the impact and, and stop it, you know, like Stephen said, this whole state could be a national park, and we have 43 state parks, and we have, there's so many incredible things in Utah, it's literally around every corner, and so as, um, I think one, you know, is the education is, is telling people, you know, there's, there's other places to go, there's other times of year to go, you know, you don't have to go down to Arches on Memorial Day weekend, why not go you know, at the end, you know, in February on a weekend when you're going to see beautiful snow and you're not going to deal with hardly any crowds. Um, so there's there's this education effort going on on, you know, other places to visit, um, how to visit them, you know, being good stewards, uh, practicing leave no trace principles, um, carpooling. Um, uh, yeah, it's just and, – and, especially that leave no trace bit. Um, and also I think part of it is, you know, with all of these crowds coming, you're getting more people who 
are aware of these places, and there there is a lot on the table right now as far as you know the the fate of public lands. And my personal hope is that the more that people know about these places and experiences experience these places, they will become personal for them too, and and that they will add their voices to um, you know preserving these places because. Um, yeah, and I think that's it's it's a tricky balance. You want people to come and know these places, and so we do our best to um, diversify the use and to make sure that we're we're being good stewards while we're outside. Because in a way, I feel selfish saying this is my refuge, and it's benefited me so much. And I, you know, me and my local community, we're the only ones who should benefit from this. Um, you know, a lot of people who live in cities should should be able to come to these places and 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 get that same kind of healing in that refuge. Yeah, it's 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 something well that's the whole purpose of national parks and I'll turn to uh Ashley Kornblatt. Uh first of all I want to I want to hear a little more about your personal story. You're a former Wall Street captive. You you escaped. Now you run a, a cycling company takes people out into into the public lands. Uh, so let's begin there. I'm sure there's a story there. <laughs> um well, uh, yes. I mean, the bicycle is what brought me to Utah and to Moab. But um, I recently got involved with a, a nonprofit called Public Land Solutions, and we are dealing with exactly these issues because there are lots of communities in Utah, rural communities in Utah, that have incredible public lands, but they haven't really embraced the recreation economy. And... Uh, and there is great opportunity for them to do that. But the trick is it's all about planning because um, we need to move. You know, in the past, we've really been in a place where what we mostly focus on is managing polygons, right? We have rules for wilderness here. We have rules for um, uh, uh, non-wilderness, for special recreation areas. We, we manage these different segments on the ground. And... As we go forward, if we're going to meet all these needs and still protect the basic integrity of these landscapes, we're going to have to start thinking about managing experiences. And what that means is there does need to be a reservation system for arches. It's not about just getting more parking spots or, um, uh, you know, getting more, um, uh, uh, you know, because if you get if you, more parking spots means the trails are going to be more crowded, so you can't just uh, or even if we ran buses into arches, you're you're still getting too many people on the trail at one time. So there's a real opportunity to start looking at the different experiences that people can have out there, and for communities once they embrace that and partner with their public land managers, they can actually start to plan. And there's a great example in um, Orangeville. Of a new of an area called Joe's Valley that is world famous for bouldering, and people come year round from Europe and all over the place to go bouldering there. And the local general store has started selling crash pads and other <laughs> and other products that that the visitors are going to want. And so, it really is about planning because if we do that, we can protect big chunks of the backcountry and still provide people with profound outdoor experiences. But we do have to work with our federal land managers and um, plan to manage these experience and help, experiences and help people um, uh, get out there.
but not but but meet their expectations so they don't get into trouble either for themselves or for the land. Stephen Trimble, what what do you think? Some of the ideas we've heard here. What one of the ideas that uh, Ashley Kornblatt was just talking about reservations, which uh, sounds dangerously close to you know rest- restrictions. Um, are we going to come to that? Public lands are supposed to be public, open to everybody, aren't they? But but uh, are we going to have to uh, go well, go in that direction? Well, we already have reservations, and public lands are open to everybody. They're just not open to everybody at the same time in the same mm-hmm. place. You know, a couple of years ago, um, my wife and I walked down Orderville Canyon in Zion, which is a lovely side canyon to the Zion Narrows. And the park issues 80 permits a day for that walk. And it's not highly technical. There are a couple of short rappels. And most of the time, we were by ourselves. A couple of times, Boy Scout troops zipped by us, and we ran into a couple of other groups of, of small, you know, small groups of canyoneers. But when you come out into the Narrows where Orderville meets the Virgin River, and you start to move down toward the Temple of Sinawava and the end of the paved road, you start to meet literally hundreds of people, hundreds of people, wearing everything from Crocs to flip-flops as they wade through the river. And they love to be there. There is no restriction on how many people can walk up that trail, but they had to get there on a, on a shuttle bus. And you're in designated wilderness, and everyone is thrilled to be there. You have hundreds of people there. And so, you know, you can work it out, but it's a constant struggle. It's like Ashley said, it takes planning. And we know that at Arches or at Zion, we have to plan because we've already put those places on the map. But at the very same time, uh, people are discovering places on their own for surprising reasons. You know, the example of Joe's Valley is perfect. You know, climbers, especially millennial climbers, are finding these these places that no one ever really thought much about. And they're not coming to them by way of many years of visiting national parks and hearing national park rangers educate them about uh, biological soil crust and taking good care of the land and understanding the ecosystem. They're coming there from the climbing gym. They're not coming to Joe's Valley because they have a a year, many years long relationship with the out of the door. They're coming because it's a cool place to boulder. And so we have to figure out how to educate them to deepen their relationship with the place so that they will protect it, uh, not just for the inherent ecological and spiritual values of the place, but also to preserve their experience. Um, you know, those, those are the, the kind of surprises that come to us along the way. And We've got, we've got, in southern Utah, we've got this vast landscape, much of which has set, been set aside in those polygons that Ashley talked about. And I think she's exactly right. We need to manage the experience of people passing through that land and give them some places that are easy access by pavement and other places that are great explorations by dirt road and many, many places where we need to set aside places as wild, where we can only go to some by mountain bike, to some on horseback or on foot. And it's such a vast landscape that it's really very much why Bishop and Chaffetz Public Lands Initiative um, had such difficulty in reaching a, a grand compromise, even if they'd included all of the stakeholders, which, which they did not. It's, it, we're talking about making decisions about how to manage millions of acres of land, all of which, really all of which, has inherent value as 
an incredible scientific reserve for paleontology and archaeology and cultural resources and recreational resources and spiritual resources for tribes and, and non-tribal people. So it's a big, it's a big, big, big planning challenge. And mm-hmm. it has to, we have to deal with it because we're going to have this flood of people coming along with us and coming behind us. I want to follow up with a couple of those things. Uh, I want to turn back to Ashley Kornblatt first. Uh, I know you have to get going here uh, at 930. Um, I wonder, following up on what Stephen Trimble said, uh, have you seen changes in in what people want to experience from the land or why they're coming out to on your cycling adventures over, over time? Actually, not really. I mean, I think everyone's just looking for the chance to get away from their phone. You know, <laughs> to get away from our busy lives and have have that break. And I think that um, uh, I think the change that we need to see needs to come from not just educating the visitor or the uh, you know to the public land, but to we need to be thinking of ourselves as hosts and stewards. And I think the pivot that's happening is, especially in Utah. You know, many communities think that the only honest way to make a living off the land is to is to take something out. You have to have a product. That there's some that the service um, community and, and providing services for visitors that's not the traditional way to make a living in Utah. But the reality is that this opportunity to be guides and outfitters and to have um, uh, entrepreneurs starting restaurants and opening hotels and other businesses that provide services for visitors, plus the quality of life recruits that we see of people who want to live in small towns like Moab where your kids can ride their bikes to school, that type of thing. There's so much opportunity here, but part our, we are only limited right now by our own outlook and our own attitude. And so um, Secretary Jewell made a speech just on Tuesday, I believe, where she talked about... Um, this new effort to count outdoor recreation jobs and to count the impact of the outdoor recreation economy. So I think that's going to start to um, help people see the opportunity that we have with the federal public land that we have in our state that we can, that truly is an economic driver that will benefit every community in Utah if we do the right planning. And it's, it's a tricky transition for some folks. They aren't quite ready, but if we can, um, I think that once they experience the fun and the gratitude that you receive from folks who are visiting these landscapes, um, it will really change the way they think about the recreation economy. And I'm hopeful that we can get the commitment from these communities to work with their federal land managers to really optimize um, these opportunities because they are out there. We, uh, I think we have to say goodbye to Ashley Kornblatt here. So uh, thank you very much, uh, owner of Western Spirit Cycling Adventures. Appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back with Stephen Trimble um, and uh, with Ann Whitaker. Stephen Trimble, author of uh, many books, of course, photographer and writer, Bargaining for Eden, uh, one of the most famous of books. Uh, and Ann Whitaker is content manager at utah.com. Uh, we'll uh, have more on this topic following the break and hope to hear from you as well at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxis@gmail.com. We do have an email come in about the marketing campaign, the Mighty Five. I'll address that uh, uh, to Ann Whitaker following the break.
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Robert Linton, October Moon Records, introducing Beyond the Clearing, featuring lyrical guitar instrumentals, information available at robertlinton.com. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Whether you pick the Western New Year, the Chinese New Year, or any other time to make New Year's resolutions, you're probably wasting your time. Research shows annual resolutions do little to move the improvement needle. So what do you do? Whether on a personal level or with a global company, continuous improvement is the answer. Goals are important. Ideals are good. But continually raising standards to new levels leads to unimaginable excellence. Commercial aviation safety, automobile quality, medicine are all fields instant, not annual improvement has created excellent results. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us uh, Stephen Tribble, Utah Rider. He joins us uh, every year for Earth Day. And uh, we're joined as well uh, by Ann Whitaker, content manager at utah.com. At Stephen Trimble's suggestion, we are addressing the future of recreation as he puts it on crowded and imperiled public lands in Utah. He says, is marketing the Mighty Five such a good idea when lines grow so long at arches the park has to close? State population will double by 2050. We'll need those lines of refuge more than ever. Uh, we're talking about it on the, the program today. What do, what would long-range planning look like? We've established the need for some very careful long-range planning uh, to address this problem. Uh, so let me begin this uh, segment of the program with this email from uh, Kylie in Moab. She says, no more Mighty Five. We're drowning in tourist humanity here in Moab. The region is being overrun and abused. The Mighty Five has ruined this once small town and is highly impacting the land and ecosystem. And uh, so I then provocatively turn to Ann Whitaker, who's, <laughs> who's a marketer uh, here. Uh, what do you say to that? Yeah. So I, I totally hear that. Um, the state's Mighty Five campaign, so just to clarify, um, Utah.com is not the state, and the Mighty Five is not our campaign. It's the state's campaign. Um, but we definitely, we also see, you know, on our website, Utah.com, um, definitely uh, we get the most uh, visits and traffic and people wanting to know about the national parks because of, of that campaign. Um, and so we... Um, yeah, yes, it's it's um, the Mighty Five did its job. You know, it 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 did very well. It's drawn a lot of people to the parks. And again, like I said earlier, um, the state is making an effort in their campaigns this year with their Road to Mighty to get people out more in the state. And what we're doing at Utah.com um, is is we are um, kind of making a, 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 a similar effort in trying to educate, like I said earlier, people about um, other places in the in the state to visit that um, are just as beautiful, just as amazing. In fact, um, you know, we've been putting out a lot of articles lately about um, camping and backpacking up in northern Utah, you know, so even for locals especially um, who don't, <laughs> 
you know, who don't want to go experience, you know, waiting in line for an hour or maybe two hours for the shuttle in Zion. You know, why not why not take your family camping in the Uintas? It's it's incredible. Why not go, um, you know, up near Snow Basin um, in the summertime? It's cooler up here anyway. So trying to encourage even locals to experience the entire state because they can. You know, they, they it really is um, one of our campaigns is explore your own backyard, um, get to know it. Um, and, again, that for – for me personally, the more people know these areas all over the state and 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 see what these public lands can do for them and their families um, is is really important and um yeah, I get that these you know I don't like seeing you know these lines backed up from arches it's it's it is a catch twenty two it's all right, people know these places, people are seeing these places, but um okay, now we we see what it's done. Now what, what can we do to make it better? How can we educate people? How can we spread them out? How can we um, let them know how to take care of these places while they're there? So um, we have a lot of efforts coming um, out this year as well as um, to, and, you know, we we have we have a very big audience and, and we like to target um, topics like how, you know, how to be a, a good hiker, how to leave no trace, how to, um, you know, where and when to backpack, what to watch for, you know, plant life, wildlife. Um, I sit down a lot with wild, the wildlife directors in all the different parks, um, and we really try to to dig down and say what are the problems, you know, that come with these crowds and how are they impacting everything in these parks and areas and and what do you what are the common problems you're seeing and and then um taking that information out and and making sure it's on every piece that we put out there's something there that people can learn about being better stewards uh Stephen Trimble, I'd, I'd like to throw this question to you as well that, that about the marketing and the and the mighty five if I, if I could I'd like to frame it in the, the economic terms um so Kylie talks about how I guess you know Moab gateway city to a couple of the parks there is uh, really being impacted. Uh, you know, Torrey and uh, Springdale and other communities, uh, it's important, the, the, the tourism, but on the other hand, uh, how much is too much? Um, so, so specifically, what about the, the Mighty Five campaign? Well, it's, it's ironic that um, at the very same time that the, the state is pushing tourism and the Mighty Five and attracting people to this extraordinary landscape, you know, the, the decision-makers in the legislature especially uh, still think that we're a commodity-based economy. They, they basically refuse to admit what Ashley pointed out and what Sally Jewell pointed out in her speech on uh, a new direction for conservation on public lands, that we really are a recreation economy on those lands, and that's where the opportunities lie. You know, there was a, uh, a hearing at the state capitol yesterday where Mike Noel was um, basically leading leading the fight to harass the tribal folks who were uh, speaking for a Bears Ears National Monument. And he was very aggressive and very rude to those tribal folks and kept saying, well, we've already got three national monuments in San Juan County. We have Hovenweep and Rainbow Bridge and Natural Bridges, and the economy has not taken off as a result. Well, those, those are tiny little spots set aside, and Bears Ears would preserve almost 2 million acres of land, all the way from Canyonlands down to the Navajo Nation. 
in a way that would allow us to do the kind of planning and spread people out and avoid those crowds that, that we're talking about in this program. You know, I, I think that um, our first visit to a national park is a little bit like a first date. It's almost like a blind date. So, you know, I've, I've run into folks from other states who have heard the Mighty Five campaign and they come to Utah to, quote, do the national parks, to do the Mighty Five. And I don't want them to think that they're done after a three-day trip where they zip around the state and, and wait in lines to get a quick glimpse of each of those five national parks. What I hope is that they'll see that as an introduction, you know, a blind date, and choose, choose the park that they begin to fall in love with and come back and spend some time there and begin to explore the backcountry and maybe sign up for a, a backcountry tour and stay in the local town and realize that beyond that national park, you know, beyond Zion, are the national recreation areas down by St. George um, in the Red Rock Canyons and the Beaverdam Mountains where they can see desert tortoises and backcountry hikes that are in, on BLM land that they can find online. You know, it's, it's really easy these days to find your way beyond Pelagarge mm-hmm. or the Zion Narrows. Uh, if you do a little bit of poking around online, uh, landing perhaps even on utah.com, mm-hmm. and find your way beyond that, that first uh, sort of calendar view that we think of as, as akin to a first date. So I totally sympathize with Kylie that we've overrun Moab, and we've done a great deal of marketing Moab, but there are a lot of little towns that, that need some tourism, that need some help. You know, Monticello and Blanding and um, Escalante could use a little bit of that overflow. Hmm. Let, me, let me follow up with, uh, with that, uh, Stephen Tribble. Uh, so this, this ongoing debate... Um, in your view, if we were to move more and more toward recreation and leave behind uh, you know, extraction and, and other industries, can recreation bear the, the weight of that, uh, that economic weight? Can, it, can, it, uh, can some of those areas be, uh, I guess, a, a recreation economy? Well, they absolutely can, and they already are in so many places. And we need to remind ourselves that this is not a place for endless development. You know, Utah is the second driest state. We live in an arid state. There is not enough water for us to turn southern Utah into Ohio, nor should we want to do that. And so those, those little towns out there that are struggling, they're not struggling because we haven't done enough to help them. They're struggling because there aren't enough resources for lots and lots of people to live there. That's okay. That's a good thing. We don't want every town in Utah to be the size of Provo or Salt Lake City. You know, there's nothing inherently perfect about endless, unlimited growth, even though that is sort of an American uh, ideal. And aridity and climate change are going to continually remind us that those are facts that we have to deal with. And at the same time, we have these extraordinary landscapes. There's nothing like the Red Rock Canyons or the Colorado Plateau. You know, the Rocky Mountains, the Great Basin, our little bit of Mojave Desert down in Washington County. You know, we have extraordinary diversity, and that diversity will continue to change as the climate changes. And recreation is one way and a crucial way for us to continue to have wild places that we enjoy 
and that we can make some money from as, as those small pockets of people who live scattered scattered across rural Utah. But uh, we want we want people to have a, a high quality of life in those places, but we can't expect lots and lots and lots and lots of people to make money off of those places because those kinds of resources simply don't exist there. You just joined us. We're talking about future recreation on public lands in Utah. We're talking with Stephen Trimble, and we're also talking with Ann Whitaker, a content manager for uh, Utah.com. You can join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. I'm going to ask my guests, and I'll ask you as well. Uh, I'd love to hear your response. Uh, what's best-case scenario with Utah public lands, say, in 2050? What's your worst-case scenario? Looking at the vision, what are the principles we should follow in in this planning? And uh, where's your place? You don't have to describe it in detail. I'm interested to know where you go, where your place of refuge is. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So, Ann Whitaker, um, you talked about the road to the mighty. So you're, you're trying to market what Stephen was talking about to get people out to spread out to some of these other places. Um, tell me about some of the, some more of these places you talked to a bit about some places in Northern Utah. What are some other places you would suggest for people to go? Uh, <laughs> where to start again, this is all that catch 22. I'm about to reveal the secrets, right? But not so secret to the locals, but some of, you know, Stephen mentioned um, Escalani and and Boulder, um, that area there along Highway 12, I mean, there's there's so many small towns along there that have access to um, Grand Staircase, Escalani, that national monument. So, so many incredible um, landscapes to see and experience there. Um, and even the small businesses in these towns, I mean, the, you know, you have a place like Hell's Backbone Grill, um, and they, they try to have a restaurant that's mindful of, um, of consumption and, and, how, and how to really nourish and feed people in a responsible way. And, um, you know, and, and they've really become a part of that community, and I, and I love to send people there um, to just, uh, you know, it's, it's a place where people are really personal, and, and you, can, you can hear stories about locals and, and, and how they make a living there. And I think these smaller places... Um, what they offer is for you know tourists as they come through um, to to have that slower pace they're really looking for. I mean, when you when you get into a national park and you're waiting in lines and you're on a hike and you're bumping into people left and right, literally, um, I think you know in some ways they're disappointed. Their expectation is to come get away from crowds, to get away you know, into to enter into a slower life, and I think. Um, the stories will come out, you know, if you can get get into some of these smaller communities um, that have so much to offer, not only landscape-wise, but the people there are in, incredible. And I think you have more of an opportunity to stop and talk to these uh, local business owners or, you know, to go on a, uh, a bike tour uh, with someone like Ashley and and see why she's chosen, you know, these, these places to live and um, it's just a, a much more, it's a richer experience. Um, there's Kanab. I mean, I, I can't say enough good about Kanab. And it's, it's such a, it's, my experience there has always been very personal. And I feel like when I get into that town, like uh, the locals 
treat you like one of the, their own, and they literally wine and dine you. And um, it, it, I, I think what Utah has to offer people um, in these smaller communities is it, it's beyond words. And so we, we're hoping to get people to some of these places like Kanab and Boulder. Um, you know, and it, again, to Stephen's point, you know, it's it's not an endless resource, and um, everyone knows that. And it's 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 a tricky balance. And um, but we hope to get some more people into these smaller communities. Um, you know, I know for sure. You know, the people we work with, our restauranteurs, our hoteliers, they they would love to see more people coming their way. Um, they they love what they do, and. Um, we we're kind of hoping, and to use maybe Stephen's um, metaphor about dating, you know, it's like we we want to be matchmakers for people um, and get people to the right places and and experiencing um, both maybe something they expect and for sure things they they never expected they would experience in these small towns. So Stephen Trevor, to continue your your metaphor there, uh, you know, it's like a blind date, a first date, and you want to have people establish relationships with certain certain uh, places. Um, maybe to to begin the, this part of the discussion, tell me about uh, a, a place that's that's fed your soul. It's been a refuge for you. That's that you have a relationship with. Well, the the National Park Centennial campaign right now is hashtag Find Your Park, and my park is Capitol Reef. You know, I was I was a park ranger at Capitol Reef uh, in my twenties, which is now quite a while ago, and started going back virtually every year to photograph. And now uh, my family has a little place in Torrey, just a, uh, you know less than 10 miles from the park boundary, right on Highway 12. And so I've got essentially a lifetime relationship with Capitol Reef and the country around it. And I, I built that relationship layer by layer, kind of the way you build a marriage. You know, I, I just kept going back and... Uh, found my relationship deepening and deepening and getting to know the place in different kinds of weather. Um, one thing we can do to, to spread people out on the landscape is to get them to go in the winter. You know, winter is such a glorious time in the desert, both the Great Basin Desert and in the, the canyon country of the Colorado Plateau. Uh, and there, there are times when my family's been hiking in Capitol Reef in the dead of winter when we're absolutely convinced we're the only people in the entire national park. So... That, that's one thing I would remind people to do. Um, you know, it's the, the, the kinds of decisions that we have to make to manage for those relationships end up being really fine-grained. You know, um, the Highway 12 comes up a lot in conversations like this, the all-American road between Torrey and Panguitch. They're really, truly one of the most beautiful drives in the world. And yet, it's so hard to manage that place because they're there are all these overlapping constituencies and and power structures. You know, there are the counties, there's the highway committee, there are the public lands agencies, and there's the state legislature, which just this last session passed a bill increasing the ability for people to put up billboards on Highway 12. You know, how crazy is that? Uh, in Wayne County right now, there's a proposal to build a gravel pit just off the entrance to Torrey as people head into the gateway to Capitol Reef and to Highway 12. You know, that, that gravel pit is the last thing we need to do to uh, encourage people to build the relationship, to fall in love with the place. And so that, that, that's our challenge, is to take the folks who are in love with the place 
and encourage them to participate in discussions and conversations with the people that barely know the place and simply want to develop it quickly for a quick buck. Uh, I want to let me start with Stephen Trimble on this as we move toward to wrapping up conversation. I have about five minutes left. I'm interested in your kind of the parameters, uh, including principles, what you'd see in the in the planning, what you want to see in this long term planning that you're advocating for. So, at worst case scenario for 2050, and best case scenario for for 20, say 20, you're just picking 2050. 2050. Well, and and will be here. I probably won't. Um, <laughs> but I. I'm uh, definitely interested in, in making good decisions so that Anne and and um, and certainly all of our kids and grandkids have a chance to to experience the places in the way that we have all experienced those places. And I, I think there'll always be empty places. There are places that are anonymous that don't require a lot of our attention. But the more we draw attention to the special places that become part of ad campaigns and get set aside with names and preserves, the more we have to think about how to manage them. Um, you know, for instance, I, I once asked Kate Cannon, the longtime superintendent of Arches and Canyonlands, um, what she was going to do about these increasing crowds at Arches. Was she going to start encouraging people to go over to Canyonlands and use that as sort of a release valve? And she said, no, 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 Canyonlands is different. You know, I want to manage Canyonlands more as a backcountry place. So it, it's that big view that I think is the best case scenario. You know, people come to Utah, they fly into Salt Lake City, they go to the places they know about. And so we can direct them and we can spread them out. It's very much what Anne talked about doing it at um, utah.com, where she's encouraging places, encouraging people to visit not just the big national parks, but the places in between. And it's what the state is doing as well, although they're they're thinking really in terms of economy as much as anything. I'm thinking in terms of, of increasing people's understanding of the place and deepening their relationship with the place. And my underlying subversive reason for all that is to preserve the place, to not ruin it permanently. You know, this is fragile landscape. And so we have to plan. We have to think. And I think the best way we can find common ground is to get out on the land together. So I, my best case scenario, I guess, would be to create a series of field trips for people from all walks of life to be out on the land together and realize that we share so much love for those places that we can figure out together what to do about them. And Whitaker, same question for you. The worst case and or, you know, best case scenario. I'm picking 2050 because that's uh, when we think that Utah's population will double. Uh, by. Uh, so what, what's your vision, do you think? Oh, <laughs> I think, um, you know, I think we all kind of know and would would agree on the worst case scenarios. These places get overrun. They, you know, the, they, the, the development for the extractive industries just, you know, is run amok, that kind of thing. I think we could totally go dystopian in that, you know, worst-case scenario direction. But I think best-case scenario is, um, you know, just to add on to what Stephen, um, I love his vision, and especially this idea of field trips and, and people it's becoming um, a, a community place as, as well for people to, to join together and to 
to bring their individual experiences and contribute that to the group's experiences. And, and something that I personally, um, you know, hope to see in all of us is this, is an acceptance of that we do live in a desert, you know, Utah and its high desert landscapes. And I'm, I'm constantly thinking of, you know, the qualities of the desert itself. You know, there, it doesn't, it isn't a place of abundance in the place we normally think about it. This isn't a New England green or a Pacific Northwest, you know, rain is um, a constant. You know, this, this place survives on just enough. And, and I think by 2050, if we can really come to understand what it means to live and to recreate in the desert and to, to recognize that, that it isn't a place of indulgence, um, it's a place of... Uh, where we need to bring our respect, where we need to, um, and I, and I think part of that best case scenario is, is asking daily, you know, what can we give back? How, you know, we get so much from this landscape. We, it brings, it, it sustains us, um, economically, spiritually, um, even intellectually, it sustains us. And, and how, and, and I would just love for us to just really own and accept this kind of desert, landscape we live in and that that is a constant in the conversations when we talk about management when we talk about recreation that this place only has so much and let's make sure we're not really taxing it and 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 taking every last drop you know to an extortive extent very good Uh, we are out of time a good place to end the conversation we've been talking with ann whitaker content manager at utah.com thank you so much Thank you. And uh, Stephen Trimble, author of many books, including Bargaining for Eden. Thank you. I'm always delighted to talk with you, Tom. Uh, Thanks uh, for joining us. Also, our thanks to Ashley Kornblatt, who uh, runs Western Spirit Cycling Adventures. Earth Day, of course, is tomorrow. Uh, On Monday, we hope you join us for a conversation requested by a listener. Uh, A listener wanted us to talk with Jane Meyer, author of Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. So we'll deliver on that on Monday. Thanks for listening today.